0: Welcome to Misunderstood, I'm Rachel Yucatel. So who watched the Super Bowl last night? Who didn't watch? Now that more people than ever are tuning into football because of Taylor Swift and her boyfriend's love story. Intrigue around the attendance of Taylor, the second ever end of season game to make it to overtime, and rumors of a halftime appearance by surprise guests were expected to have driven viewership of the Kansas City Chiefs' second consecutive Super Bowl victory into record-breaking territory potentially overtaking last year's big game as the most-watched Super Bowl ever and creeping toward the broadcast viewership record set by the 1969 moon landing. The Kansas City Chiefs know all too well. They have a lot more winning to do if they are to match the success of the Tom Brady-era New England Patriots, but last night's triumph has cemented them as the NFL's newest dynasty nonetheless. Today, we have an incredible interview for you guys. You do not need to be a football fan to like this. So let me just make that caveat. But if you are one, great. I got to chat with my friend, Jeff Benedict, who just happens to be a New York Times bestselling author of 17 books and an Emmy-winning producer. Among some of these, his most recent are the three masterful sports biographies, Tiger Woods, LeBron, and The Dynasty. One thing I love about Jeff's writing is that he has such a way of storytelling that completely grabs the reader and you become instantly invested. And I have to be honest, I'm not a huge sports fan, but the books kind of make you one. I think it's because at the heart, they're not really sports stories. They're about the underdog, family, dreams, team camaraderie, friendship. So his book, The Dynasty, has now been turned into a docu-series for Apple Plus and will premiere this Friday, February 16th. He spent five years inside the New England Patriots organization where he was given access like never before. He navigates the team's remarkable journey and boldly confronts the controversies that have marred its reputation, not shying away from topics such as Spygate and Deflategate. We get to know the players, coaches, and the owner in a whole new light. Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, executive produced the 10-part series alongside Jeff Benedict. And we should expect a never-before-seen look into the inner workings of a champion football team, one that is supported by the chemistry of a quarterback, Tom Brady, and head coach, Bill Belichick, and sustained by owner, Robert Kraft. You do not need to be a football fan, as I said, to appreciate this amazing conversation. So please take a listen to my friend, Jeff Benedict. my old friend. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you for joining me.
1: I'm thrilled to be here. been looking forward to this for a while.
0: Good. So I wanted everyone to know full disclosure, this is not the first time we are meeting. I want to hear your recollection of when my name came across your, your desk. (laughs) Uh,
1: My recollection of that is pretty crystal clear. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) I was working on the Tiger Woods biography and, uh, I wrote that book with a, a colleague, Armin Katayan. I usually write alone, but I wrote that one with a, with my teammate, and we divided up the labor, so to speak. And uh, he was calling all the people, like uh, golfers and those people in Tiger's world. I was assigned all of the women in Tiger's world. So that that starts with like uh, friends who uh, befriended him when he was young, his teachers, you know, all all the. So you were on that list, obviously, and, and I reached out to you multiple times while writing, trying to write the documentary. You and I never communicated, at least not verbally, during that whole process. First time we ever spoke was a week before the book was published. You were on an island somewhere and you read the New York Times review and you texted me because you had my number and um, and asked if we could speak. We got on the phone and a couple weeks later, you and I met at the W Hotel in Times Square. I brought my daughter, and we watched 60 Minutes together um, in a room. That was my introduction to you, and it's been uh, great ever since.
0: Right. That's uh, that's exactly um, how I remember it. I remember I had my store at the time, and I would get these messages from you and your co-author trying to get me on the phone, and I was like, no, I don't want to be a part of this. And then when I finally read the New York Times review, and I saw how good, you know, the, the rave reviews you were getting. Um, and then also when I started to read the book, I was shocked at how you got details so correct. And I had never spoken to you. And so I was like, well, this is the real deal. I want to know this guy. Um, so it's always, it's been my honor and my pleasure to, to have gotten to know you after all these years. Um,
1: so likewise, by the way, I have to say, I feel the same way and uh, my daughter, Maggie May, who came with me to meet you that first time in the hotel room, um, thinks very fondly of you because it stretches back to how this whole relationship started. So I got yeah. to meet your daughter. You got to meet mine.
0: Right. That's right. And um, also, you know, you were, I guess, helpful or I was helpful to you guys in, in getting that docu-series done. And you asked me to be a part of it. I didn't want to do it. I did it because of the trust that I had. Um, with you. I got myself in a lot of trouble after, but it it didn't even mean anything to me that I, that I, you know, that there was such controversy after from the other side. I was happy to do it. I wanted to do it because I knew if the story was going to be told, I wanted to tell it in my own words. And also I was willing to tell things that you had already written about that I was not the source of. And I was just kind of reiterating those things that you had written about. So um, it was a uh, such an interesting process being part of something that was so big and um, was so well received by the public. What, what were your thoughts um, of the docuseries that came out of Tiger?
1: I mean, it's a great opportunity, but it's a rare opportunity when Mm -hmm. you get to turn one of your books into a, a documentary or a scripted series or a movie or a Broadway play. I mean, those are all like um, pie in the sky dream ideas that, don't usually come to fruition for any authors. Uh, so for me, it was it was just a wonderful opportunity to have Tiger turned into a two-part documentary series for HBO, and really, you know, it, it reaches a different audience because people who watch HBO, um, you can you can get the story in front of a lot more people that may have read the book, and then some people go and buy the book because they they saw the series and. Most people who saw, read the book probably watched the series, but The Other Way Around works great for the author.
0: Right, right. So the reason why we're having you here is because The Dynasty is coming out this week on Apple. Um, and so I wanted to talk to you all about that. But before we get into that, I wanted to yeah. kind of find out from you how you got into writing, because from what I know, that's not how your life started out. You didn't want to be some big writer, correct?
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm still I'm still not a big writer, but I'm I'm happy to be a writer. Uh it definitely didn't start out that way. Uh I grew up in a blue-collar family. None of my, you know, my parents and all of my the men in my life, un- aunt, uncles, cousins, grandfathers, they were all blue-collar. You know, they all worked with their hands. They most of them were in construction. And I could have done that. In fact, I did that when I was in college. I put myself through college working construction, partly. Um, but I went to law school to become a lawyer, and I'd hoped to use my brain a little bit for my job more than my hands. And uh, But while I was in law school, I started writing about violence against women. I didn't do that because I wanted to be a writer. I did it because I was trying to be a good advocate. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in violence against women, both sexual abuse and domestic violence. And in fact, in law school, I worked in the prosecutor's office in Boston, and we prosecuted those kinds of crimes. And I, I had an opportunity to get some of my stuff published. Uh, some of it got published in The New York Times as essays, op-eds. I started getting more attention. And at one point, the chief prosecutor who I worked for, you know, I said to him, I said, you know, I have a chance to sign my commercial publishing contract to write a book. And uh, he said, to I said, what would you do? Because I I had always told him I wanted his job someday. And he said, "Uh, are you kidding me? Like he said, I I do 12 trials a year, 12, which means I speak to 12 people per trial. It's 144 people a year. He said, in one night, you can go on a national network news program and you can talk to a few million people about violence against women. Who do you think reaches more people? What do you think has more impact? He's like, you shouldn't even think about this. If I had the chance to do what you have the chance to do, I'd, I'd do it and I'd never look back. And um, I made a major pivot point in law school. I stayed in law school, by the way, Rachel, I got my degree and, and I even got my law license. But I, I, I knew I was going to be a writer and I've been a professional writer since my second year of law school.
0: February is the month of love. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know how in love I am with today's sponsor, One Skin. Most skincare routines only deliver superficial results, but with One Skin, you get a scientifically proven treatment that improves the appearance and health of your skin at the cellular level. What's their secret? One Skin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient scientifically proven to reduce the buildup of cells that contribute to skin aging, which means with one skin, you are left with healthier, younger looking skin with fewer lines and wrinkles. Reduced age spots and a stronger natural barrier, which is especially important this time of year. Your skin does so much for you. Return the favor with One Skin. Believe me, you will not be sorry. For a limited time, our listeners will get an exclusive fifteen percent off their first One Skin purchase using the code understood when you check out at Oneskin.co. That's Oneskin.co. Invest in health and longevity with your skin with One Skin. So I've been using this now for two months. I'm not kidding. When I tell you how many people have DM'd me that have used the code and that have gotten products saying that they absolutely love everything about it. I love everything about it. I now use the body lotion. I use the eye cream. I use the face cream. I actually now use the tinted moisturizer for the sun. I think it's SPF 30. Um, I gave for Christmas, I actually gifted my 78 year old mother, um, Uh, the product. It was the travel pouch. And she uses all the product, even the face wash. I use the face wash too, actually. And she keeps asking how she can get more. (laughs) So, um, people are loving this. I I'm not kidding. When I say I get an overwhelming amount of DMS on this product in particular, um, that people absolutely love it. You have to try it. You guys, one skin is more than skincare. It's about skin longevity, targeting the root causes of aging to help you look and feel your best at every age. Get started today with 15% off code, using code understood at oneskin.co that's 15% off oneskin.co o n e s k i n.co with code understood after you purchase they'll ask you where you heard about them please support our show and tell them we sent you it's time to expect more from your skincare routine invest in the health of your skin with oneskin. here's a hard truth four in ten americans struggle with obesity You can do your best to stay healthy and eat well, but with all the exercise fads and health hacks out there, you don't necessarily know what works for you. And honestly, they're just not sustainable. I've gone through that where my weight has gone up and down and I don't know where to turn. But what if you could take a weekly shot to lose weight and keep it off? Let me introduce you to the Row Body Program. The Row Body Program provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market and paired with healthy lifestyle changes like diet and exercise modifications, you can lose 15 to 20% of your weight in a year on average, and actually keep it off. Are you ready to get started? Roe Body program supports you through the whole process. They pretty much hold your hand through every step, from helping with insurance paperwork to on-demand questions. You can even sign up online. Before being prescribed medication, patients need to complete an online medical visit and lab test. Qualifications for medication are based on the patient's BMI, lab results, medical history, and the discretion of a Roe-affiliated healthcare provider. The Roe Body program is ready and waiting for you to take the first step go to ro.co slash understood. That's ro.co slash understood. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash understood ro.co slash understood. Um, Okay. So Jeff, how do you pick your books and your topics?
1: Uh, well, that's changed over the years. If you ask me that question, like, how do I do it right now? That's a very different answer than I would have given you when I started. So okay. now, nowadays, um, I I have a different whole set of factors that come into play for picking topics. And uh, after having done a series of biographies, starting with Steve Young, uh, the San Francisco 49ers Hall of Fame quarterback, and then Tiger, and then Dynasty, and then LeBron, once I got into that cycle, which is primarily biographies of extremely successful world-renowned athletes, uh, that's basically the credential now is I try to pick people, people or organizations that are considered the best in the world at what they do. Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't necessarily mean it has to just be athletes. I mean, most of the books I've written are not about sports figures, but the past few have been. But that's the the standard, meaning the threshold is, in other words, there's a lot of athletes that are really, really good, really good. They're great, but they're not the greatest. And so Mm -hmm. I would probably not do those books. Um, And so there's a limited pool of athletes that I could actually write about. Um, Once you get in the category of Tom Brady, LeBron James and Tiger Woods, there's just not many people in that pool. But that's Mm -hmm. that's the threshold. And I think for for Simon and Schuster, you know, that's what they want from me as well. So it has to be something that, first of all, I'm passionate enough about to spend two or three years of my life doing Mm -hmm. and also that there's a big enough uh, commercial market, meaning there's interest in these this individual preferentially around the globe, not just in the United States. And all three of these those names I just mentioned fit that.
0: I'm just curious, now that you said that, are you in your relationship with Simon & Schuster now that you can call them and say, here's who I really like, or they come to you and say, we really want to do a book on this because this will um, really succeed? Are you guys doing that kind of collaboration at this point?
1: Yes, absolutely. And so um, I don't really do book proposals anymore. I mean, that's the thing. If you just said in the beginning, you know, obviously I had to do a book proposal for everything in the beginning. and. Yeah. Um I don't do book proposals anymore i i we have conversations it's uh here's what I'd like to do next and um sometimes uh they bring the idea to me in fact, that is what happened with lebron i that was, Lebron was not my idea, but i didn't I literally didn't think about it. I was sitting in my publisher's office with my editor and my agent, and I had pitched the dynasty as my next project, which they were willing to do but they wanted me to get access to the organization first and i knew that was going to take that was going to take some time mm-hmm. to build a relationship of trust and i and they said well that's okay take as long as you need but in the meantime you could just work on a different book and i said well i don't have a different book like that is my my great idea and so yeah. i said maybe you could come up with an idea and so a few weeks later we met again and and they said the same four people i was sitting in that office and the publisher said, how about LeBron? And I just, I literally didn't even, normally if someone brings me an idea, I go through a process. I talk to my agent about it. I talk to my wife. I look at the numbers, all these different things. In the moment, without even hesitating, I said, yeah, like, are you kidding me? And I've said this, Rachel, to a few people, particularly some friends. If I actually had thought about it, I might have been too intimidated to do it. Yeah. And so it was one of those moments of blink. You know, just your first instinct is, yes, trust the instinct, do it, and don't look back. I I mean, I'm glad I didn't think about it.
0: So on the Tiger book, you did not have Tiger's approval. You did not have access to him, but you had access right. you ended up gaining access to all the people around him that made the difference enough that you got all the stories that created this amazing book. So in the situation of LeBron, did you know you were going to get access? How did that all work?
1: So in biographies, unless it's like in the Steve Young case, it's per, I think it's relevant to bring that up. Steve hired me. Like hmm. he, he commissioned me. He paid me. To be his writer, to write his biography, um, that's an autobiography, and he controls it. He owns it. Like He literally owns the copyright, and I wrote that in his voice, first person.
0: As a ghostwriter, basically.
1: Not even. He put my name on the cover. So he, oh, he did? He, he told, yeah, he told the world who his writer was, that's, and, and that's the kind of guy Steve is. He, that's what he did, and it's great. So I wasn't a ghostwriter. But um, but I did the same thing that a ghostwriter does, which is write in the, the the uh subject's voice and from their perspective. It's their vision of the world. Um a traditional biography, you you don't do that. Like Tiger doesn't commission me, doesn't pay me, he doesn't have editorial control, neither did LeBron. Mm-hmm. Um and those biographies, in my opinion, um are really, really good because they're, they are subjective. And I'm not saying Steve's wasn't subjective. Obviously, if Tiger or LeBron ever decides to do a full-blown autobiography, where they're really literally willing to go where Andre Agassi went when he wrote Open, that would, those would be incredible books. But most people are not willing to do what Steve Young and Andre Agassi did. When I went to when Steve wanted to hire me, I told him, I said, I'd love to do this, but we need to do it like Agassi did with Mm -hmm. J.R. Moringer. Like you got to go the distance. You got to you got to open your soul. And if you're willing to do that, talk about anything and be honest about it, be unafraid. Then this is going to be a fantastic book. Most celebrities, star athletes, musicians, actors, they have a really hard time doing that. And so that's why the objective biography told from the way we did Tiger and LeBron is usually better. And especially like I would bring up the LeBron one because some people were critical of that book because it's inspiring. And they're like, well, where's all the dirt? And I'm like, why do you have to have that to have a good book? Like, Mm -hmm. this is a great story about an American. It's a great American story. This is something that could only happen in America. And I found it inspiring and I wrote what I saw. So, you know,
0: well, then that brings me to my next question. Like, do you go in thinking that it's going to be about one thing? And then as you gain access or you're hearing stories, the book becomes about something else like with the dynasty. I know this was your plan, but, you know, you would have maybe thought this was going to be about Tom Brady. And then all of a sudden you see this is a love story. This is about an underdog. This is whatever it becomes for you in all these situations.
1: So I I never go in with um with preconceptions about what the story is going to be. I mean, obviously, if you if your publisher says, "How about LeBron?" What he's asking you is, "What do you think about writing a you know the definitive biography of LeBron James?" Well, you know what that is. Mm-hmm. That okay, but what you're going to find in the course of researching that life that that's a mystery to me because I don't know. And um, I didn't know about the Patriots. I'd never covered that team. I'd never been around them. I didn't know Tom. I didn't know Bill Belichick. I didn't know Robert Kraft. I didn't know any of those guys. Mm-hmm. So to go into it saying, oh, I know what the story is. No, opposite. I go in like a, a kid in a candy store who wants to taste everything that's on the shelf, all the different colors. I want to open every jar, pull that out, taste that, go to the next one, and at the end figure out which are the ones that the audience, the reader— really needs to taste themselves and you know going in that with lives like tigers lebron's the the belichick brady craft they're public figures like the the world knows about them that's why you can get those big book contracts your job as a biographer though is to tell the world all the things they don't know Mm
0: -hmm. like
1: it's the stuff you don't see when you're watching the masters on cbs or watching the nba finals on abc or watching Tom Brady give a press conference after a football game. None of those things are revelatory, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody got to see them. Yeah. You got to go find the things, and you know, because you've, you've read these books, they have to be laced with things that you didn't know.
0: Right. We're going to get to Dynasty in one second, but out of the Tiger and the LeBron, I'm curious, were there was there one story that has always stuck with you that you came across that you were like, wow, this is so interesting or special or terrible.
1: Yeah. uh, Well, (laughs) with both of those gentlemen, I would say there were many of those with both. And since LeBron is more current, um, I'll tell you one from then. Like when when you talk about not knowing things, when you start, I had no idea that LeBron kept a journal uh, when he was a, a very young teenager for one year, basically, of high school. And I was fascinated when I found out that there was, and those, those journal entries were published in a, in a magazine uh, back in the day. And I, I got access to all those, I read them all. And when I built uh, some timelines of LeBron's life, I noticed really something really interesting, which was these journal entries um, intersected with the first time he met Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan was his idol growing up. And um, he was being compared to Michael Jordan when he was in high school. Like He would be the next Michael Jordan, which is a terrible burden. I mean, Tiger Woods had a similar burden, right, when Sports Illustrated put him on the cover and his dad compared him to, like, you know, all these great political figures. But in LeBron's case, he actually met his idol. When he was in high school, one summer, he went to Chicago uh, for a basketball tournament, and um, in between games, he got invited to go visit this gym by a guy who worked out with Michael. He took he took LeBron to Michael's private gym. And to make a long story short, after showing him the gym, the gym was empty. It was a quiet day. Michael wasn't there. Michael's retired at this point. And LeBron sees the gym, and after showing him the gym, the guy invited LeBron to come back later that summer and stay with him for a week or two and work actually work out at the gym. And LeBron did that, and when he went back that summer to work out, a lot of NBA players, star players, big players who were from Chicago, they would use Michael's gym in the offseason to train and work out in private. And LeBron got to go there, and he, he saw all these pros running and training and lifting weights, and he saw how they behaved as professional athletes. And on the last day, they let LeBron get in a game. Think about this. This kid's like he's a teenager and he gets on the court with all these guys that he's used to watching on TV. And the amazing thing was he could actually run with them, meaning he could keep up. He could compete. And if that wasn't stunning enough, at the end of the day, when all those guys got in their fancy cars and left and went wherever they went, LeBron stayed behind to clean the gym with the guy that had brought him there. And they just cleaned everything up, and they were leaving, locking up, walked outside, and in drives Michael Jordan, LeBron's. He hadn't been at the gym the whole week. LeBron uh, knew who it was, and Michael got out of the car, and LeBron was really just kind of mesmerized. Like it, you know, this would to be like me meeting Paul McCartney, and mm. uh, which I did, and I was, I was like, felt like I was levitating. I mean, this is this is him meeting Michael. And Michael comes up to him, and Michael knew who LeBron was. He invited him back in the gym, and they spent, like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes talking in private. Michael didn't give much advice, but he gave him his cell phone number. Think about it. The next day, LeBron started high school again, his junior year. He shows up on the first day of school, and he's got Michael Jordan's cell phone in his pocket. And he doesn't brag about it. He doesn't tell anybody about it. But he's got a direct line to his idol. Just think about how rare that is for Mm -hmm. any child, whether it's a girl who idolizes Taylor Swift, a boy who idolizes Tom Brady, you have your idol's phone number. And to me, there were so many moments about LeBron's upbringing that were like that, that were unknown, that say a lot about why he is the way he is today.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, Did you ever find out you know, if LeBron read the book, what his thoughts were about it? (laughs)
1: Um, I I did find some things out about that, which I'll keep to myself because I can't say... They're private, but I I was told something very nice. Um, He hasn't read the book. At least he hadn't read it when I was told this, which I would have been shocked if he had read it because Mm -hmm. I think that uh, these gentlemen... um, People who have lives that are as busy and eventful as they have, they almost don't have time to read any books mm. and uh reading a five hundred and fifty page book is a commitment that it most totally Americans cool. don't take the time to do right um, Lebron's one of the busiest people literally in the world. he's not a president of a country, but he's He's one of the most visible people on Earth, and he's a, he's got a packed life. And on top of that, he's an actual committed wife, uh, husband, I mean, and father. Mm. And it's time consuming. So um, the last I was told, he hadn't read the book. Um, but I, like I said, I would have been surprised if he had.
0: Right. Well, but he's not calling you and screaming at you about how. No. Yeah, right. No. OK, that's what I was curious about. No, um, no, no. Something that you said was interesting, right there. That you know, it's a commitment to read a five hundred and fifty-page book. I and you would think your target audience are sports fans. Who I don't know that no. they really read like that, do they?
1: They don't. They don't. Sports fans are the worst. It's the worst audience <laughs> in the world um, because they watch. Te- all they want to do is watch games. And, and right. I, look, I watch games. I get it. But um, the fact of the matter is, that's there's a reason why very, very, very few sports books make the New York Times bestseller list. It's a rarity. Um, It's extremely hard to do. So yeah, my audience, I'm targeting a different audience.
0: Right. But there's something about how you write your book. And I will admit, I'm not all the way through it. But I have not skipped ahead. I have not put it down. I mean, I've texted you and called I told you, this is an amazing book. For not only the sports fan, like not only a sports fan who may like it, right? Of course, that's your obvious person who's going to like to right. read about the Patriots. But for a woman, a woman who doesn't give a shit about football and, you know, who didn't know anything about the Patriots. I mean, I, I it's an incredible book, if you like something about an underdog, if you like a love story, if you like, you know, I had no idea about these people, um, that were so hated or beloved and I find it fascinating and I really cannot put it down. So it's, I mean, that is why obviously I think it, they, these kind of books do well because they're not really sports books.
1: No. And I, I love that you, you know, as a, as a woman, when you say, I don't really give a shit about football, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear that. Honestly, like, that's great because you're exactly the kind of person that I'm writing for. Um, right. I, I want women who don't give a shit about golf. I mean, they don't know what a I, I don't know anything about golf myself. I've never picked up a golf club in my lifetime. I've never played around a round of golf. I don't know how. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously, I'm not writing for golf people. I, I, yeah. I'm writing for look, women read books. That's yeah. who buys books. I know that. Well, Unless and we buy talking... them
0: for and we buy them for the boyfriends or husbands in our life, That's right? right? And then we read them. Yeah.
1: When you once you get outside business books though, which the Wall Street guys buy, you know, when you get outside that genre, women buy most books. Mm-hmm. And so there's a reason that I when I set out to do the Patriot's book, there's a couple of people falling in love and getting married in that book and it's actually very directly relevant to the story I'm telling. When Robert Kraft meets his wife, Myra, Mm. that wedding proposal is just like you would think Steven Spielberg made that up Yeah, because it just sounds like, oh, come on. Are you kidding me? Like he met her and the next day she proposed not first of all, she wouldn't go on a date with him. And 24 hours later, she asks him if he would marry her. Like, are you kidding me? But then also when when Tom Brady meets Giselle, I, I actually found that incredibly interesting that they are talking about getting married at a time when Robert and Myra are celebrating 40 years of marriage. Mm -hmm. And and by that time, Tom Brady looks at Robert, you know, he's got a great relationship with his own dad, but he also has like this kind of interesting um, like father-son relationship with Robert. And he was watching the way Robert and Myra functioned as a couple. They looked at Tom like a, a fifth son and they treated him like one. And he's in that universe as he's meeting the most famous supermodel in the world. And I just think the way that rubs off, its it, to me, that's all really interesting. And they're great portals into who these guys are.
0: Yeah. And actually, something I want to mention to you, too, is I have actually teared up. Like, I felt myself choking up reading this book. I don't think that's ever happened. And it's actually not regarding the stories with the women in it it's about like their feelings of winning or their you know camaraderie with the team or things that are happening to them that they have to overcome or um and so anyways it's a fantastic book for women who don't give a shit about the patriots so we'll go from there but (laughs) i i just really i love it i'm so proud of you um
1: i think on the next edition we're going to get a new blurb from rachel you could you could tell in the back misunderstood i don't give a shit about football but yeah (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's a great line. Yeah. Um, Okay, so these topics, or um, everything about what goes into the book has to be such a huge part of your life for so many years, I would guess, from doing the research, writing the book, and then, you know, making it into a docuseries, which they all seem to be coming, right? Um, You know, you have to really like your subjects and you have to really like, you know, and get the access. So I want to talk to you about access, but let's let's get into the dynasty in particular. Can you define dynasty? Because we've heard it used with the Yankees. I think after, um, you know, if the Kansas City Chiefs win this this weekend, this will come out after. But we'll know, um, you know, dynasty will be used again with that. So define dynasty to you.
1: Sure. So there's a there's a, a more modern definition of dynasty that I think has been applicable since like the 70s or 80s and that really is defined as winning 3 championships with the same nucleus. Okay so let's not talk about the Yankees from the Joe DiMaggio Mickey Mantle era or the Celtics from the Bill Russell era. Those dynasties they they won many more than three, right? They just won again and again and again and again. In the modern era, where the game has changed quite a bit, it's a lot different today. To win three championships with the same nucleus is extremely hard to do. So the Kansas City Chiefs are not a dynasty yet. If they win the Super Bowl, they will have won three with the same nucleus. Patrick Mahomes as a quarterback, Andy Reid as a coach, and the Hunts as the owner. Uh, that's a that's a dynasty. If they win a third one, they've got three. They're in the club. There's only there's a very small number of football franchises that have done that. The Green Bay Packers did it, you know, in the 60s. The Steelers did it in the 70s and the 49ers did it with uh, uh, Joe Montana and Bill Walsh and and Debartlow in the 80s. Um, the Patriots are different because they didn't win three. They won six. And they didn't do it in a decade. They did it over the course of two decades. Mm -hmm. So the Patriots are, you could call them a double dynasty if you want, or just it's the greatest dynasty, which is how I refer to it, because no one's come close to doing what they did. There are other teams, Rachel, like the Steelers have won six Super Bowls, which is as many as the Patriots have won. But the Steelers won four in the 70s with one nucleus. And then many years later, with a totally different team and in a different different era they won a couple more
0: right okay so now I want to hear what what it took to kind of, to make this book what how hard was it to get the kind of access that you were given to make it as thorough as it was
1: um it you know it's one of the um harder things that I've done in, in my career is uh, navigating all of that mm-hmm. um I started with, I'm kind of an old fashioned person in a lot of ways in terms of how I do certain things. And I started like my, literally my very first step in this process. And it's like a baby step compared to where you got to end up. Um, This is like looking up at Mount Everest when you're on the bottom and you move an inch. I mean, that's how far you got to go. And I started, that first step was sending a letter to Robert Kraft, the owner of the team. And my thought was a lot of people had gone through Tom and Bill over the years for stories, for books, for all kinds of stuff, for films. No one had really ever approached the owner and no one had ever tried to tell a story through the eyes of the owner. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was the way in. And so I wrote to him and initially I didn't hear from him which was not surprising. What was very surprising to me was eventually, like five or six months later, one day I went to my mailbox and there was a letter from him personally. And before I even opened it, I had decided that he was different. Regardless of what this letter says, the fact that he took the time to write me a personal letter the old fashioned way, in other words, it wasn't the vice president of communications for the Patriots, it wasn't an email from an assistant, or just a nothing, it was an actual letter in the mail. I still have it. It's a, to me, it's, wow. a, it's a very important memento in the history of this process. That led to a series of correspondence, which ultimately resulted in me getting an invitation to come up to the Gillette Stadium and meet with the owner in person. And I did that numerous times over the summer in 2018. These were get acquainted meetings. Not, this is not me working on a book. This is us figuring out whether I can work on a book and whether this will work. And he asked me a lot of questions. I asked him a lot of questions. But interestingly, I think maybe for your audiences, the kinds of things he asked me might surprise people. Like he was asking me things like, are you married? Um, How long have you been married? Uh, Do you have children? Yes. How many do you have? He was really, I mean, I look back on it now and I see he was really trying to understand not who I was as a writer. I mean, he could look that up, but what are you like as a person? And it's interesting, like, you know, and I think that there were things that we had in common, right? And so I was asking him a lot of questions about his dad and his mom and his relationship with his father and his mother. And so there was some, um, what would I call it? I mean, a rapport that was formed early. It was conversational And uh, at some point, there was some comfort level established, and there were a lot more steps that came after that. But, you know, I had to build relationships with a lot of people. But I started with the owner because, to me, he was the most important person um, for me to get access to and learn from and talk to.
0: And then from him, was he able to open the doors to everyone else? Or did did it kind of end there with him and you had to go around the other way?
1: Well, I still had to do my job right like mm-hmm. you can't you you still have to be able to connect with other people a lot of other people, and everybody's wow. different right Tom is different than Robert Bill is different than Robert, and those out- those outreaches went differently and had different results. I don't mean like bad and good I mean the the degree of participation and or the degree of openness was different um depending on who I was dealing with and um but I saw them as the principals, and then there was a whole cast of characters on the second ring that I thought was really important
0: and then we you just talk about the process of like putting it all together and laying it out because there just must be so much information in front of you and so many stories and you know what struck me in in reading it, especially at the beginning and you're not reading about touchdowns and football until later when we get into some games, um, you know, how do you even decide what comes first? How do you decide to how you're going to write it? It's like really poetic how you write it because, you know, you can write things in an outline and know what you're going to put, but then the way you write it is so eloquent and draws the reader in the way you start the book, um, with Drew Bledsoe, Um, on a hospital bed is like genius. You know, it pulls you in as a reader. I don't even know who that was, you know? And I was like, oh my God, this is great, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah. You're actually that opening scene. uh, So I could just talk really briefly about the first scene and the last scene. Great. Because the first scene was something I had to recreate from uh, 2001. Mm -hmm. The last scene happened in real time while I was there. Right. So they're different. The first scene is a surgical procedure where a hundred million dollar quarterback is about to go under the knife and um, because he has blood pumping through a ruptured artery and filling up his lung. And if they don't stop, get the blood out of the lung and stop the bleeding, he's literally going to die, which would have been the first time in the history of football that someone had died from something like that. And what I wanted really badly was I wanted the reader to be able to look over the shoulder of the surgeon who's looking down and opening up Drew's chest. I mean, it's there's a lot of reasons why I wanna do that. Partly it's because you wanna show the reader on the first page, this is gonna be intimate. You are gonna be inside this organization.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You're gonna be in rooms like an emergency room, an operating room, which usually you're never allowed to go. And second of all, I I was trying to set the stage because when Drew wakes up from that procedure and he's groggy because he's been under the influence of a drug that was designed to dim the pain during the procedure, when he wakes up and he's foggy and he, he's just trying to figure out where he is, and he's, the first thing he sees looking up from his bed is three figures standing over him. Mm-hmm. It's in, in order. It's it's Robert Kraft, Bill Belichick, and Tommy, as Drew called him, Tommy Brady, the kid that no one knew yet, who had not ever started a football game in the NFL yet he's he's so unknown that when he showed up at the hospital to check on drew, they wouldn't let him in because they didn't the hospital staff didn't know who he was right he, when he wakes up and sees those three men standing over him, it is unfathomable that he's looking up at the future of the greatest football dynasty ever, like at that moment, they are so far from that it is it is almost laughable, right? but that's the future. And so that's why that scene had to be recreated with interviews with all of the people who were in that room. The most important one of all is the surgeon and -hmm. the surgeon has never ever talked about that. So I had to go through a lot of legal steps just to get the authority for him to be authorized to talk about that procedure because of medical privilege. So yeah. it's complicated, and it takes time.
0: Right, of the course. Other, go ahead.
1: One at the end, which is, you know, actually, I'm not going to go to the end because I don't want to give the ending away. The next chapter is in the present, right? Mm-hmm. The prologue is in the ER. Chapter one starts in the moment, mm-hmm. and that's a scene where Tom Brady in 2018 is walking into his suite at the stadium, excuse me, 2019, He's walking into the stadium, the suite of his, in the stadium, and it's about to start his last season in New England. He's got one year left, and he's going to leave and go to Tampa at the end of that year. When he walks into that room, he's looking out at the glass at an empty Gillette Stadium. There's no one in there. This is the suite that usually Giselle and the children sit in on game day to watch him play. So he's never looking down at the field from that view. He's always on the field. And I was just taken by this idea that here's Tom Brady who never has time to take a moment to reflect, and he never has this perspective from up above. I wonder what he's thinking when he looks out at the empty Gillette Stadium after 19 years in New England. Came there as a boy that no one knew, unmarried, single, a nobody who goes on to marry one of the most beautiful women in the world, have children, be a dad, build a business, become a superstar, all of that, he becomes a man in full in that building over the course of 20 years. What's it like to look out at this at the back end of it? And I asked him that when he came in. And he stood there and looked out and reflected out loud, which is why I was able to tell you what's in his head. And I don't tell you in the the chapter, I don't put myself in the scene because it's not about the writer. It's mm-hmm. so much better when it's just all the light is on him. Because nobody cares about the writer. They they want to know what Tom is thinking. And I just thought it was a, an incredibly powerful way to open up when he's looking back at the end. That's why that chapter is called End Game. It's chapter mm-hmm. one, but it's End Game. And then you can go back to the beginning and then start. Um, but, you know, I I spent a long time figuring out how to do all that. Like, it's way faster to write it, but, but what takes time is to diagram it. Like to, It's like building a house. The architectural plans take a long time to for me to draw out. Once I have the plan, I can write like the wind.
0: Right. And it's so interesting, though, because you paint such a good picture. I mean, you, I could literally picture it in my head as I'm reading it because the details are so good and, and the emotion is there. You know what I mean? And it's very clear that it is a view um, coming from someone who had access to be in that room with all these people, whether it was in reality or just through hearing stories. So, I mean, you really feel like you're in the room. Um, I'm curious, you know, with all the access you did get to, you know, the, the main three that were that you end up really talking about Belichick, um, Kraft and Brady, um, was there something that stood out about why this was such a winning team? Are there three reasons this was, you know, they were such winners?
1: Well, one of the best things that happened to all three of these men is they were vastly underestimated by their peers. Mm-hmm. And when you're underestimated, that just pisses you off. I mean, there's, there's, it really. We're all like that as human nature. When, when you know you're really good at something or you're, you're working really hard. Maybe it's just when you're in school, like as a student, and you're, and you're underestimated by a teacher. It, it, it does something to your psyche. And for a lot of people, it, it breaks you, you know, like it's, I mean, I was underestimated a lot. Like it, you know, it, it drives me as a writer, because I know what it's like to be underestimated. And I think it's common in so many genres and businesses and, and just in life in general. Mm-hmm. And while, it, while it's happening, you hate it. But I think for these three guys, it was a wonderful thing because they were all underestimated in their own spheres. And they they are such incredibly competitive, determined men in their own right. Mm-hmm. By putting them together, there's, you know, Tom would play with anger. You know, Michael Jordan played with anger. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he went out when he stepped on the court. He was there to beat you into the ground. Tom played with anger and he played really well with anger. Tom is not an angry human. You know, when you meet Tom and anywhere off the football field, he's one of the kindest, most thoughtful, gentle humans you'll ever come across. He mm. is like that in real life. But when he's on the football field, he's a killer. Yeah. And, and and Bill is Bill has this incredible reservoir of drive. And so you put them together. That's why I, I compare them to Lennon and McCartney in the book because when Bill put his headset on and Tom put his helmet on, they didn't have to be best friends off the field. They they had a magical language between them, just like John and Paul did when they were and whenever they were in the studio at Abbey Road. They just made magic. And then when they walked out of the studio, they went their separate ways. And right. I think that's the beauty of Bill, Bill and Tom. And then you got Robert who. I mean, this guy, he's 82 years old, and I, every time I'm around him, I'm just like, how does someone at that age possess the drive and the energy even after, never I'm not even talking about just saying because he's older, I'm saying he's already accomplished so much, like what's left to prove? But right. that's the thing about all three of these guys, it's there. Th- that's not how, they think differently than everyone else. Like, they're going to drive full speed until they're not with us anymore. That That's how they're made. And right. I think that combination of the three of them, it's kind of scary. Like, for 20 years, it's not surprising that they ran roughshod over the league for 20 years.
0: Mm-hmm. And I've heard you talk about how, you know, when people have asked them after a Super Bowl game that they won, you know, what's next? They said, well, we're thinking about how we could do better tomorrow. It was always, you know, that was never going to be the top. It was, there was always somewhere else to climb.
1: What's your favorite Super Bowl? The next one. Right. That's the answer. It's the next one.
0: Right. And also something that I read in your book too, I found it interesting when a lot of media would get stuck on side notes, right? They would ask about right. scandals. They would ask about what happened in the game, whatever. But they will always be like, Seattle's next. Or, you know, wherever they were right. going, whatever their topic was on their mind, and they never got sidetracked and, and tried not to let the press sidetrack them unless they really needed to address something. You know what I mean? It, um, it's, a
1: great, it's a great lesson for life. Like, it, it drives yeah. you nuts. If you're, if you're part of the press corps or you're one of the other teams... And the Patriots are accused of something. They're, they're always mm-hmm. getting accused of something. Mm-hmm. And Bill's answer to every question is, we're on to Cincinnati.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're on to Cincinnati. It, it doesn't matter what the question is. That's the answer. Right. That is annoying as hell when you're a journalist trying to do your job. But he's, he's actually teaching his players a very valuable lesson, which is, don't listen to all that outside noise. Just mm-hmm. focus on your job. If you just do your job and do it well, the rest will take care of itself. I'm telling you that the, the no other team can do that. Like if you had laced layered these kinds of accusations and not just I'm not just talking about spygate and deflategate, mm-hmm. but let's just talk about the year they went undefeated the whole season and went all the way to the Super Bowl and then got a absolutely soul-crushing loss to the Giants. That's the kind of defeat that destroys a team, like from the heart, just rips your heart out. The Patriots came back. Like, they came back and went to the Super Bowl like five more times and won three more after that with the same guys that went through that thing. And so I I think there's just that that it's almost as cold, just determined you are not going to distract me or move me off my mark. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, How much credit should Bill Belichick really get? Does he deserve it? Or, you know, are all these wins, the six wins that they got due to Tom Brady? And without Tom Brady, is his record kind of shit, in your opinion?
1: Yeah. um, I think it's a disservice to, to all three of these guys. And I mentioned Robert in the same breath as the two of them because... I I honestly think that um, Bill and Tom deserve equal credit. I mean, this was a partnership. It's a team. Mm -hmm. Um, They won six Super Bowls together. And the reason I include Robert in the equation, I would almost, you'd never be able to include an owner in in this question, except in this case, I think Tom and Bill probably would have split up before they won the last three Super Bowls if it wasn't for Robert. Mm-hmm. You know, Robert kept them together for the second decade. So if things had gone the way they should have gone, like all the their predecessors that built dynasties, they would have broke up after about 10, 12 years tops. Right. And at that time, everyone would have still said, wow, what a great run. They won three Super Bowls. They went to four or five. I mean, that's a great run. They they did an amazing job. But to win three more, it, that was really Robert's diplomacy, keeping his two stars together. And right. that's all behind the scenes, you, you know, because you're reading it, but that's all the behind the curtain stuff that you can't see on TV.
0: Right. What what also is really evident, I mean, Robert Kraft, the way you write about him is so interesting. He's, you know, for someone like me, who's just read about him in the news or sees him, you know, he's the guy that had this incident at a massage parlor a couple of years ago, you know, and, and this older gentleman, but there's... I mean, this man is so impressive um, and obviously has a whole backstory and, you know, that some people don't think of when they're just looking at him now, right? Something that really struck me uh, is how much he believes in team. All of them seem to be very, you know, it's almost like they don't believe in individuality. They are who they are because they believe in being a team and they believe in winning. Those seem to be the two things and they care about each other and they care about, um, winning. And they also, um, Robert, you said, made such an effort to make sure that everyone on his team does work with charity or gives back. That was so important to him. And I think, I mean, is that what sets them apart or, or do all owners make their teammates do that or their team? Do?
1: No other owner does that. I mean, he's the only owner in the NFL that does most of the things that he does. Mm. Um, you know, he, he takes NFL players to Israel on a regular basis. Um, He and not just his own players. He's brought a lot of players from other teams, you know, to Israel. He pays for it all. He brings them to the Holy Land. He 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 negotiates the labor deals. He does the television contracts. Mm He he does. You know, when all this stuff was happening with Donald Trump a few years ago, when he was saying all these ridiculous things about NFL players and and driving a racial wedge uh you know between the league and its fans and doing all this stuff robert is the guy who kind of quietly behind the scenes is bringing people together right um he's really good at a lot of different things and i think one of the things he's probably best at is doing things and getting no credit you know and and most people that do great things they they you know they want the credit for it too he's like hey i kind of did that yeah he, For him to be successful, though, at what he does, he he has to not take credit Mm. and he has to be unseen most of the time. And I think that that's humanly a hard thing to do.
0: Yeah. Well, and as you mentioned, the Patriots are no stranger to controversy as we had. He had some of his own. I'm curious, you know, he seems the type that would be terribly heartbroken over what happened um you know obviously with the the gates with the spy gate and the deflate gate but what about aaron hernandez do you think that that affected him deeply i mean i know he felt lied to from reading this in your book i know he he cut him pretty quickly Um, but then when he you know when he was not only convicted of murder but then when he killed himself how do you think that that affected him
1: um i know how it affected him because he you know he talked about it with me and in the interviews that I did with him, and i mm-hmm. I tried to bring that out in the book um mm-hmm. he it really hit him hard because he trusted him and mm-hmm. it's hard to fool Robert. he's a very sophisticated, smart person. he's good at reading people, and he misread Aaron yeah, um he had a hard time believing that he could do those things that he was accused of doing and ultimately was convicted of doing. Yeah. And I think it was painful for him because it, it, uh, this, you know, when players join that team, you know, they're reminded that that you're where it's like, you're wearing the family name on your uniform. Mm -hmm. And because all of the players do works of charity and commit a certain amount of their resources to, Nonprofit work and all this other stuff. it's very community based, so when you have something like that happen that's that's the opposite the starkest opposite of what the the organization has tried to build for the last thirty years in New England. So it was painful. It cast a pall over the whole team, the mm-hmm. whole organization, and um it's sad. It's really sad. Um, right. It's a sad chapter, and honestly, it was not a chapter that I enjoyed writing I mean. Yeah. There were some hard things I wrote about that didn't bother me that much, but that one was was also hard to write.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and then regarding Spygate and Deflategate, like what was real? You know, the the media had so much to say about it. I don't even yeah. really know how that ended. I mean, I know from what I'm reading, I'm I'm right there now in what I'm reading. But yeah. like, what was real? Because to <laughs> me, like Deflategate sounds so dumb.
1: But It is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> it's dumb. I mean, Spygate was, in my opinion, was more real. That doesn't mm. mean it was; it had a significant impact on the outcome of games. But th- the fact is, in Spygate, there was an acknowledgement, an admission of wrongdoing, where they were taping uh, signals from the New York Jets' sideline. And they acknowledged that, and they were punished for it, as they should have been. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that had anything to do with why the Patriots we're beating the Jets like a drum. I, I don't think it had anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the point of the thing I like to remind people about spy, uh, Spygate is that happened on the first in the first half of the first game of the 2007 season. OK, mm-hmm. the second half, they they absolutely destroyed the Jets when they weren't taping. And then the rest of the season, when they obviously weren't taping, they went 15 and 0. And the games weren't close. They were beating really good teams by—they were basically demonstrating to people in, in overdrive that this has nothing to do with filming. And mm-hmm. I believe that's true. But it doesn't change the fact—and this is the problem with the, their—we all know perception is powerful. That shouldn't have been going on. And it's, it's unfortunate that they did it because there's always going to be people who latch onto that and say, see, that mm-hmm. was real. I think Deflategate was a, was a whole lot of craziness about nothing. Um, you know, there were balls that ha- had you know funny air pressure that day. It was cold. It was rainy. Um, the Patriots killed the Colts that day, and and I think the evidence shows pretty clearly that this was really all brought about because the 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 Colts and the team before that that the Patriots had beaten the Ravens. They kind of were communicating and complaining about the Patriots winning so much, mm. and that was the start of this thing. And Tom Brady kind of got, you know, he took the brunt of this, and it tarnished his reputation, which I think is un—it's unfortunate. Now he played long enough to kind of, you know, wear that off ultimately, yeah. and winning all those extra Super Bowls. But he won four more after that. But I think that the Flategate thing was a lot—was a whole lot about nothing. Uh, Spygate, and do you I think, think had if, more substance.
0: And do you think Deflategate wouldn't have been such a big deal if Spygate hadn't happened because they were already accused of cheating?
1: No question. No, it is, okay. Deflategate wouldn't have gotten any traction Yeah. if it wasn't for Spygate. They'd already had a gate. That's the problem. <laughs> right.
0: Um, okay. So your book comes out, The Dynasty came out in uh, 2020 during COVID. Yep. Um, you yep. kind of, and the end of that, Tom Brady had. Um, you know, already said he was leaving the Patriots. I'm curious if you know what that conversation was like between Belichick and Kraft when they found out um, that he was moving to another team, that he was going to the Bucs.
1: Yes, it's the, the, uh, at the beginning of our interview you talked about the prologue. The Mm -hmm. scene you're describing or asking about is the epilogue. Oh. And yeah, so I won't give it away, but what I will say is um, I was waiting To see what the decision was going to be, because that's how I was going to close the book. Okay. And um, I'm not saying I predicted that because I didn't. I was surprised. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm acknowledging I was surprised. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you how I wrote it, because you asked about intimacy earlier and writing and all that. Mm -hmm. I wrote the last chapter, which is a scene where Tom notifies Robert and Bill that he's decided to leave. Which is going to effectively end the dynasty. By definition, the quarterback's leaving. It's over. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote that over the course of two days, that last scene. And um, I wrote it in my office on a Saturday and a Sunday. And I wrote it while listening to Abbey Road, And I listened to it again and again and again. Because for me, this was that moment. Like, this is the end. You're mm-hmm. you're seeing the end of something transformative that we'll never see again. I felt that way. I feel that way about the Beatles breaking up. Um I love you too. I love the Rolling Stones, but they're never going to be the Beatles. There's only one of those. Yeah. And I think when when John and Paul called it quits, like that's just it's sad. It's heartbreaking, but it was time. And this was time. It was heartbreaking, sad, but it was time. And that scene, I wrote it to that music for a reason because I wanted the reader to feel <laughs> the sadness of it, right? It's the, the the last second of the book, the last image is Robert Kraft standing alone in a doorway at his house in the dark while Tom Brady's taillights of his car disappear as he goes through the electronic gate at Robert's house and disappears into the night. It's.
0: Yeah. It's heavy. Wow. Um, do you think we'll ever see a quarterback like Tom Brady again? Do you think no. Patrick Mahomes is is similar?
1: No, mm-hmm. I don't think he's similar. And that's not taking anything away from Patrick. I think Patrick mm-hmm. is amazing. I think he's the best player in the NFL today. Um, I think he's alone. He's in a class of one in the NFL right now. And this is his moment. Um, I think he, I, I'm not going to predict how many Super Bowls he's going to win. You know, but it, No one's ever won seven, and no Mm -hmm. one's ever played 23 years at the peak of his career. When Tom retired last year, he he could play right now, and he'd still be top three, four in the league. He was when he left uh, after 23 seasons. It is almost impossible to play quarterback in the NFL at peak performance for more than 12 years. I mean, the the data is just overwhelmingly obvious about that. And that is from players that in Tom's era were pocket passers. And what I mean by that, not to get too technical, Rachel, is Tom didn't run with the football. Peyton Manning didn't run with the football. They were pocket passers, meaning they stayed in the pocket and they threw. They rarely scrambled. They rarely ran. Patrick Mahomes is a running machine. He it's one of the reasons he's so electric and dynamic. And all I'm saying is that in this business, it is very, very hard to survive when you take hits year after year after year after year. So this is not about talent. It's about endurance. It's about survival in the NFL. Um, Steve Young was a running quarterback and he was the best to ever do it. And there was a point where he couldn't do it anymore because his body just wouldn't allow it. It was too dangerous. And I'm saying that I think what Patrick, Patrick's playing in a new era of football. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the quarterback and the mobility and the running and all that. And I think it's going to be hard for any quarterback, any quarterback to play 23 years at the top of their game and win seven Super Bowls. I just, I'm not sure we'll ever see that again.
0: Right. Um so you're an executive producer on the docu series. Talk to me about the process of how that happens. You write the book and then someone pick, and then that gets picked up or you know as you're writing this is a possibility. Break that down.
1: So, um I've had uh, f- five of my books turned into television shows or films now. And so when I first started doing it, I knew nothing about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I know a little bit about it. And so but one of the things is like you know, writing in a way that makes a book more adaptable to screen. And so I, I try to do that anyways. And, Mm -hmm. and then learning more about how to, how to pitch a a book for a television show, for a series, for a movie, and also getting more familiar with the kind of people you want to work with because you've maybe worked with them on something else. And, and, and so I started thinking about the dynasty as a documentary series before I started writing the book. I was, when I was researching the book and outlining and you know sketching scenes, uh, I was already thinking this would make a great docu series. And um, so I started working formally on the docu series as soon as I wrote that last scene in the book, the Tom saying goodbye scene. I had about eight months before the book went on sale from that moment, and I spent most of that time working on. The legwork to sell the series, mm-hmm. uh, to sell the you know the book as a series idea, and um, then it's a matter of you know meeting with producers, meeting with directors, finding a production company, finding a streaming service or a studio, and I was intimately involved in every step of that. Whereas I can say honestly, in the beginning, when I first started trying to sell books for development. I wasn't intimately involved. I didn't know enough. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anybody, uh, mm-hmm. but now I do. And so I'm much more just like with my books. Nowadays, I'm involved in every detail, like cover design, the the font of the letters on the spine of the book jacket. I I'm involved in all of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I now I'm much more involved in the adaptation process to for films.
0: So what can we expect from this series? I mean, did the guy? Did all the main players get involved? Did they sit for interviews?
1: Yes, every one of them: Belichick, Brady, Kraft, uh, all the main players. You know, Randy Moss, Drew Bledsoe, Rob Gronkowski, Julian Edelman, uh, Ty Law, the, the, Teddy Bruschi, all those guys. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, John Bon Jovi. It's it's wow. It's the whole cast. It's it's a lot of different people that have that are either really in the thick of this story or had interesting intersections right Mm. at at some moment in time that was worthy of putting them in there and by the way a lot of the adversaries the foes are in here too the Mm. new york giants the the rams like the the jets those those we have representation from those guys as well i mean uh, michael strahan is a is a great voice in the series he's terrific i mean and Obviously, the Giants beat the Patriots twice in Super Bowls, and Michael's very happy to talk about that
0: right, right now, incidentally, did these guys talk to you about reading the book this time?
1: Oh, some of them did I mean obviously not in the you know we would n- not ask them a question like that on camera
0: no, no but yes, just for you, yeah,
1: yeah, a lot of them did, and i they a lot of them were very um look, you know this because i you went through this with Tiger I mean, when you write a book. There's a couple things that happen. Some people won't talk at all. And you're a perfect example. You have a legitimate reasons that could range from, I just don't know this guy. I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if I really want to talk about this. Who knows how this book is going to come out? All valid. All valid. Then you have people who say, well, I'll talk to you, but they're talking to you, but they hold stuff back because mm-hmm. they're not sure they really want to go the distance with you, but they'll give you some stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you have a few rare people who actually go the distance. Well, once the book comes out, all those people who were like, you know, I'm not, I'll am not, i give you a little bit, if, if they now can see it and go, wow, he really did me well. He yeah. didn't take advantage of me. He didn't abuse my relationship of trust. Now they're willing to go the distance with you in a film or someone like you who didn't want to talk at all now says, well, uh, yeah, I'll talk. Um, I wasn't going to talk before, but I'll talk now. And so we had a lot of that and it was, you know, very helpful.
0: And does it follow, does the docuseries follow the arc of the book or it's all new stories?
1: It follows the arc of the book. So the series is based on the book Mm -hmm. and, um, and it follows that arc. The difference of course, is that the series comes out four years after the book finished. Mm -hmm. So it, it also has an element of covering the, you know, the end, the end part that that I had stopped writing for.
0: Right. And so I, right. And so much, and it's so timely, obviously you guys are putting it out right after the Super Bowl, and also all this interesting stuff with Belichick that came out. I'm curious your thoughts on Belichick, not finding a home yet.
1: Um, yeah, it did come out. You know, the timing of this is just again, spontaneous. You can't really do much about it, but, um, I, I think he'll, I hate to make predictions, but I suspect he wants to keep coaching, mm-hmm. and I think he will coach again. Um, I think legacy and achievement and history matter to him, and I think that he will. He'll get another chance, you know. But um, coaching NFL is like a carousel; the coaches fall off all the time. So I think there'll be he'll have an opportunity.
0: Right. Um, has there ever been a person you wanted to write about or do a book about that wouldn't give you access or that doesn't, you know, that it just, nobody wasn't as interested as you were?
1: Yes. Um, I'm doing that book right now. That's okay. my next book.
0: Can we talk about it or no?
1: I can't. Fine. But um,
0: will you tell me off camera?
1: <laughs> yes, I will. I will. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, okay. A couple other random questions. What do you think of the Brock Purdy story?
1: Um, you know, I think it's when you say the Brock Purdy story, which story are you talking about? Like well, coming maybe,
0: from, yeah. Coming from like third string, like, you know, this yeah. young kid who kind of like Brady wouldn't have gotten a chance if somebody else didn't get hurt. And then the next yeah. person. And now we're going to the Super Bowl. So, and yeah. he's still no, young. I love that.
1: I just wanted to make sure that's the story you were talking yeah. about. I, yeah. I love that story. I mean, how can you not like that story? You don't have to like the 49ers to like that story. It's a great story. Um, I think that's the beauty of sports, those kinds of stories. It's great.
0: Right. Um, Taylor and Travis, um, are you, like, what's the big deal? Like, isn't this good for the NFL? Do you think, what do you think Robert Kraft and all those people think about it? Uh,
1: it? Look, it's great for the NFL. It's, you know, anybody who's complaining about this just You know, come on. I mean, it's it's I'm not a Chiefs fan, but this is what's happened this year has been great for the league. I think Taylor Swift is, you know, she's the biggest star in the world right now. Mm -hmm. I don't you know, it's just it's that's a fact. I mean, that's not an opinion. It's a fact. Yeah. And the fact that she has um, been involved with the NFL this year is great for the league. You know, there's a lot of people paying attention to the NFL that weren't before. And it's the other thing is great storyline. I mean, when when uh, you know Travis's brother uh, loses to is knocked out of the playoffs and retires. In the next game, he's in Buffalo in the cold, and he rips his shirt off and jumps out of the box, and he's hoisting little girls up that are whose parents are Buffalo Bills fans, and he's holding the kids up so they can wave to Taylor and drinking beers with the fans. I mean. How is that not good for the NFL? It's just, yeah. it's camaraderie. It's all that stuff. It's, it honestly, one of the reasons I do like writing about sports is be, versus politics is because sports is a great way to bring people together. And, mm-hmm. and even when you fight about sports, we all know it's really just kind of in fun. Like, it's a game, you know, and the Yankee-Red Sox rivalry or the Lakers-Celtics rivalry, those are great rivalries. But at the end of the day, There's a lot of respect, mutual respect both ways between the cities and the fans and the people. It's not this meanness that you see in politics that's so divisive and ugly. And that's one of the things I like about the Taylor Swift-Kelsey story is it's actually, to me, showed a lot of unity. I was at the game when the Chiefs came to Foxborough this year to Gillette Stadium and Taylor Swift came to the stadium. And she has a special place in New England. She played her first live stadium show ever at Gillette Stadium in New England. She Mm -hmm. Patriots fans, New England fans connect with Taylor in a different way because of that. She played three shows there this year. She played her rain show there. Did the fans boo her? No, I knew they wouldn't do that. Like when when they showed Taylor Swift on the big screen in the stadium, she's there to root for the other team. And the Mm -hmm. Patriots fans were cheering for her. Like to me, that's a great storyline in sports.
0: Yeah. And it's such a nice crossover. I mean, listen, I am now watching football when Kansas City comes on and my daughter has, you know, the jersey and she gets so excited and she's not playing Roblox. She's playing these football games now on her computer yes. and she knows all about it and she knows the players and she's so excited. And I love that. And, you know, to see, and I know you'd know this, to see the excitement on your child's face in the stadium, watching Taylor Swift perform is like no other feeling, you know, to see how excited your kid is about something. And so I think of all people that could be involved in a a very male driven sport, Taylor really crossed the the bridge there. And, and it's, Phenomenal! It's so fun, you know. I'm excited to watch this Sunday. So, um, you know, I I'm think so
1: glad you brought that up because here's a story that most of your your viewers won't know, and it's really cool. When the Chiefs came to Foxborough this year to play the Patriots, uh, so Robert Kraft actually gave Taylor Swift a gift. Um, they they created like a it, these are real, but like a ticket from the very first show that she played at the stadium way back at the beginning of her career. And they presented it to her while she was at the stadium rooting against the Patriots. Wow. And that that kind of, um, I think, when you asked the question earlier about Robert Kraft and how he's different, there's a whole entertainment side of him that people don't recognize either, like his relationship with Taylor Swift, the Rolling Stones, all these different, like Bono,
0: and he's by built Joe B,
1: yeah. Elton John. I mean, he's built like real relationships with all of these entertainers because he has brought them all to Foxborough, Massachusetts, not Boston, not Boston, not New York, Foxborough, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think it's just it's part of that bigger thing that the Patriots have done over the last 20 years.
0: Yeah. Um, what's your favorite sports movie?
1: Hmm. My favorite sports books would be easier to tell you. Um, but movie, I would say, gosh, I'd have to really think about that.
0: Well, I'll, um, I'll like Jerry Maguire, Air, Moneyball, Rudy, For Love of the Game. I don't know.
1: <laughs> um, I would probably say, I mean, I, I liked all those games. Air was hilarious, but I wouldn't call it my favorite sports movie. Um, I, Jerry Maguire is... Probably top three for me. If you're in, if you're going sports genre, I'd put Jerry Maguire top three. I love the movie that Robert Redford made, and I'm forgetting the name many years ago, where he was a baseball player.
0: Oh, um, Um, if uh, if you build it, he will come, or the Bull Durham. Well, no,
1: that was Kevin Costner. I'm thinking. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I like that one too. Um, I I like Tin Cup. I like Bull Durham. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: Okay. Um. What was your favorite book that you ever wrote out of all of them? Wrote? Yeah. Do you have a favorite? That it,
1: yeah, I don't know. I mean, the experiences are different with all of them. And my career's changed a lot over the years. Like, there were some books I wrote in the very beginning of my career when I didn't have much of a career. And those books are pretty near and dear to me, like Without Reservation, Little Pink House. Yeah. Those books um, mean a lot to me. And yeah. uh, they always will. I think uh, Dynasty will always be right up there just because it was something I wanted to do for so long. And I finally got to do it. Um, and it, it means something deep to me, you know. Um, and Steve Young, just because Steve Young was someone that was like a, he was a role model of mine when I was a kid and um but i'd never met steve until the day i literally had never talked to steve in my life until the day he asked me over the phone if i would consider writing his book with him and that i was in my you know mid mid to late 40s and i was like having a role model call me up and ask me to do that was i couldn't believe it because i had so much respect for him as a as a man mm-hmm. and and so that one the dynasty Without reservation, Little Pink House. Those are probably four of my my favorites.
0: Yeah. And I you took me to one of the screenings, I think, of Little Pink House. And it, it was such such a phenomenal movie. Um, you know, people should definitely get the movie, get the book, whatever. Um, totally different topic, but you know, you write about true life circumstances that have happened to people and you know again kind of this underdog story that is just it's really emotional and phenomenal and if people don't know that story it's something they should know about you know um yeah. so I loved I loved that um and I then loved
1: Kath, Catherine Keener's portrayal of Suzette Kilo was unbelievable. dynamite it was like again when I think about things that I've got to do to be able to work with Catherine Keener on a movie was uh incredible you know yeah. it really was
0: And that was so fun, too, because I had so many questions after. I remember being like, are they still together? And, you know, I'm getting to ask you all these intimate things on the side that you only you would know. So I I loved going to that. Um, All right. So you said you have something in development that you can't talk about. Is there anything in development that you can talk about?
1: Um, Not really. Um, I have I mean, I'm working on a book right now that I've Mm -hmm. started a year ago. Okay, and it's one like the dynasty that I've wanted to do for a very, very, very long time, very meaningful to me personally and mm. um, and I have a another television show in the works, but it's not something that I can talk about yet because that's up to the streamer.
0: <laughs> okay, no problem. All right, so where can people find you if they want to look up um, any of your books or more about you?
1: um I'm on. My website is Jeffbenedict.com, which is really easy. It's got everything there. Um, mm-hmm. I'm author Jeff on Twitter and author Jeff Benedict on Instagram. Both both of those sites have a lot about me, but my books are, you know, my books are available everywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, all the the Dynasty and LeBron and Tiger and those others are, you know, on any any platform that sells books will should have them.
0: And yeah and if you guys liked what you heard here or you're interested in trying them out or reading them yourself or getting them as a gift, they're by the way, they're gorgeous books. um the covers of them are, are some of my favorite books I've ever seen and um and they're they're amazing. Everybody should try them out. Um, thank you so much again, um Jeff, for being here with me. I really appreciate you. oh, and you, um Roger. the dynasty comes out on Apple on February sixteenth, correct? That's right. Okay. So everybody should watch it there. I'm sure everybody is already very excited. When I put on my social media that I was even having you on, I got a plethora of DMs. Wait, what? Oh my God, I can't wait to see this. I'm so excited. So <laughs> I will be texting you that night. Um, I can't wait to, to see how people um, receive it and how it does, but good luck to you. Um, I really appreciate you. Thank you.